First Kings chapter 13. We're just going to read the first verse here, and my goal is to have a little review, and then also to set up the individuals, the characters of this chapter as we begin to seek the Lord on what He would have us to learn from this Old Testament illustration and warning for us. First Kings chapter 13, verse 1. Now behold... <clears throat> There came a man of God from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord while Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense. And of course, this is directly connected into the previous chapter. If you look at verse 33 of chapter 12, Jeroboam goes up to the altar that he had made in Bethel And he, if you go to the end of the verse, he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel and went up to the altar to burn incense. And of course, this is what is happening in chapter 13 and verse 1. The important thing here, I think, is that, you know, a lot of times when the scripture introduces a new topic or a new event, it just says, now, now there came a man of God. But here it says, now behold, or now look at this. Look at this incident that is occurring here in 1 Kings chapter 13. And so by way of review, we've noted that the kings, both for the nation Israel and the nation of Judah, are measured by what two kings? Judah is measured by King David. The king either walked in the ways of King David or he didn't walk in the ways of King David or he fell short from King David. And then in Israel, they're measured according to which king? Jeroboam, the one we're looking at uh, right here. And so 14 times, now sometimes there, there's miss and match, whereas an Israeli king would say something about he didn't walk in the ways of David, but 14 times here in the Kings and Chronicles, it refers to walking in the way of David or 17 times walking in the ways of Jeroboam. Now we noted uh, last Wednesday that Jeroboam used Scripture inappropriately. He used a verse out of context, and one of the ways that he used it out of context was leaving out God's response to that incident. And we saw it here in verse 28, when he tells the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. And of course, that last half of that, behold your gods that brought you up from the land of Egypt. Who said that initially? Aaron said that to the people. And he is clipping that passage out of the book of Exodus. But of course, we learned that when you take a verse out of context and you take a verse and use it inappropriately, a lot of times you're leaving out not only the context, you're leaving out God's response to it. I mean, of all the verses to use, you wouldn't want to use a verse, I think Exodus chapter 32, 
in which God's wrath came down and a plague came upon the people because of what they did. And from that point on in the nation of Israel, their eyes began to be gradually darkened. I mean, this was a very, very significant event in that nation. And it began a process that ultimately resulted in our Lord talking about their eyes being closed. They actually could not see at all. And so here Jeroboam is getting up and saying, now look, behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, the reason why he did that is because he was interested in what? Himself. Himself. He was interested in protecting himself and gaining his own personal interest. In verses 26 and 27 of 1 Kings chapter 12, Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will return to the house of Israel if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So he got consultation and they decided to do this great sin before the people. Now, the people should have soundly rejected this, right? So yes, the ultimate blame and responsibility is placed on Jeroboam, but there is also a responsibility of the people. They didn't reject it, they embraced it. And of course, they embraced it because it made sense to them economically and in a comfort uh, wise. They were not as discomforted to go all the way up to Jerusalem to have these types of altars. And of course, the king used the scripture for his own personal gain. Do we have people today that use the scripture for their personal gain? The answer to that is yes, it's all over the place. And you don't have to be, um, you don't have to be a charismatic to use scripture for your own personal gain. Even God's people, when they don't know the context, they don't understand the passage, they just kind of read it and they pull it out of its context because they want to do something. And so they find a passage that ends up supporting what they do. That is a real danger for all of us. And as I mentioned before, Jeremiah appealed to their purses and to their ease, to their comforts. And what he did is he devised a worship of Jehovah that used many of the structures of the true worship of Jehovah, but was in fact an idolatrous worship. And it's interesting here, verses 31 through 33, I just want you to point out, I want to point out to you the scriptural emphasis here. Verse 31, he's Jeroboam, and Jeroboam made houses. So who made it? Jeroboam made the houses on the high places. Jeroboam made priests from all the people who were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam did this. Verse 32, Jeroboam instituted a feast on the eighth month of the 15th day of the month. Jeroboam instituted that feast 
like the feast which was in Judah. Jeroboam himself went up to the altar, thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves, which Jeroboam had made. And Jeroboam stationed in Bethel the priest of the high places, which Jeroboam had what? Made. So what's the emphasis here? What's the Holy Spirit bringing out? He devised these things of his own heart. Verse 33, Jeroboam went up to the altar which Jeroboam had made in Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month, even in the month which Jeroboam had devised of his own heart, and Jeroboam instituted a feast for the sons of Israel, and it was Jeroboam who went up to the altar to burn incense. So at least nine times perhaps 10 times in three verses, the Holy Spirit is noting for us that it was Jeroboam who came up with this out of his own imaginations, whereas Moses got his instructions from who? The Lord himself. And folks, this is really a danger in a nation such as ours that when it comes to biblical Christianity, that we're always trying to find what works, we're always trying to find what's successful, we're always trying to find, we're kind of pragmatic about this. If it works, it must be okay. If it gets numbers of people, that's okay. And we're just full within our own American Christianity of people who sit around and in a committee, in a group of people, come up and devise their own ideas, all based on scriptural principles. But does the Bible tell us about worship in the New Testament? It does. There's a lot of passages that teach us how to structure ourselves, what we're to be doing, what our aim is, and even in some cases, what we should be doing in an order of services. And so, what does the Lord say versus we're just going to make this God-centered or Bible-centered or come up with our own ideas, and if it works, then God must be in it. That's not true. Did it work for Jeroboam? In a sense, it did, didn't it? The people did go up, and he did, as it were, uh, confirm his kingship. And again, just because something works, just because there's a lot of people for it, we don't make our evaluations that way. We make our evaluations by the Scripture. Now, the interesting thing here about 1 Kings chapter 13 is that all that happened here, now you just think about this. Here, a man of God comes down from Judah. He confronts Jeroboam while he's making this offering to burn incense. He condemns it. He tells exactly what's going to happen to that altar. He actually names the man who's going to come and destroy that altar. Verse 2, Josiah by name. And he gives a sign that his words are true. Now just think about this. You're up on the thing. Said, Behold, the altar shall be split apart, and the ashes which are on it will be poured out. Now just think about that. You're hearing this word from a man of God, 
And he says, this is going to happen to confirm what I'm saying. And Jeroboam in verse four of First Kings 13, when he heard that, he cried, which he cried against the altar in Bethel. Jeroboam stretched out his hand because he was going to do what? He was going to seize him. And his hand dried up and became like, I would imagine, like rigor mortis. He couldn't even draw it back to himself. Would you call that a miracle? That would be a miracle, wouldn't it? Now think about seeing that. And when that happened, verse 5, the altar, just like the man of God said, was split apart and the ashes were poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Now, with something like that, would you perhaps say to yourself, maybe what this guy's saying is true? (laughs) But we really don't know the evil of our own hearts, do we? When we decide that we want to do what we want to do, we can be rather stiff-necked about it. So Jeroboam, in verse 6, says to the man of God, and this is amazing to me, he says to the man of God, please entreat the Lord your God, please pray for me, so that my hand may be restored to me. You think that he's the king and he's got the right God, he just pray himself. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and what happened? Got his old hand and arm back. Now, would you sit there and say, hmm, maybe what this guy's saying is of the Lord? But if you look at the end of this chapter, even after what happens between the man of God and the prophet and the lion and the donkey, Verse 33, after this event, Jeroboam did not return from his evil way, but again he made priests of the high places from among all the people. Any whom he would, he ordained to be priest of the high places. This event became sin to the house of Jeroboam, even to blot it out and destroy it from off the face of the earth. No repentance at all. And the end result of that is what? Death and destruction. His house was not established. And it began the downward spiral. What was already in the hearts of these people began that downward spiral until they were taken away by the Lord into captivity. It's quite an amazing chapter. Now, when we look at the main characters of this chapter, you've got to be struck by one predominant truth. And that truth is, is that they are all unnamed. What, what is the man of God's name? You don't know. What is the old prophet's name? You don't know. And if I could continue, you don't know the name of the donkey or the lion either. <laughs> and I left out one. His sons are mentioned. 
And you don't know their names either. And you don't know how many sons there are. There's got to be at least how many? Two. Two. Isn't that amazing? Now, I ask myself why, and of course the answer is, there's no biblical answer to this. But I did think that perhaps the reason why the names are not given is because the Lord is giving to us a significant event that we can generalize. In other words, we're supposed to get something out of this. It's not just clearly a specific event. It is specific, but he's wanting us really to pull out of here the warning that the Lord has for us. And again, not only the fact that they're unnamed, but again in 1 Kings 13 verse 1, now behold, the word behold means to look. Look at this. And it is quite amazing. Now we won't look at the sons, although they are mentioned. And we'll look briefly at the donkey and the lion later. Specifically the lion. Isn't that amazing? The lion, as it were, takes a big swipe and just sits there. Doesn't maim the body, doesn't eat the body, just sits there. I thought to myself when I read that, I don't know if I would like go over there and get the body. Would you? With a big old lion there? But here it is right out there. So not only is there a man of God, not only is there a prophet from Samaritan, not only the sons, the donkey, and the lion, but there's something else here that really is the ultimate main character. And that ultimate main character is the word of the Lord. Note in verse 1, a man of God from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord. So the Lord sent the man of God by the word of the Lord. Verse 2, he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord. If you look at verse 5, the altar also was split apart and the ashes were poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. So the word of the Lord is a main character, isn't it? Look at verse 9. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall eat no bread or drink water or return by the way which you have come. Then in verse 17, you have the same thing repeated. For a command came to me by the word of the Lord. Then you have this lie by the old prophet, verse 18. He said to him, the old prophet said to the man of God, I also am a prophet like you, and an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord. 
That's interesting, isn't it? So folks, what we have here is we have two people giving what they say is the word of the Lord and they are contradicting one another. And you will notice in verse 18, he said, an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord saying, bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. He lied to him. Then in verse 20, they're sitting down at the table. Now it came about as they were sitting down at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. The word of the Lord came to the man of God or the old prophet? Came to the old prophet. And he said to him, because you have disobeyed the command of the Lord and have not observed the command which the Lord your God commanded you, but have returned. He got rebuked by the one who lied to him. Verse 26, But when the prophet who brought him back from the way heard it, he said, It is the man of God who disobeyed the command of the Lord. Doesn't use the word word, but it's referring to that same truth. And lastly, verse 32. <clears throat> the old prophet spoke to his sons and said, For the thing shall surely come to pass, which he cried by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel. So <clears throat> the word of the Lord is an actor in this event, isn't it? And it is a prominent actor in this event. Now, there's two other people. We've already talked about this. And that is the man of God and the old prophet. Now, the interesting thing here is that in this chapter, 1 Kings chapter 13, out of how many verses in this chapter? 34. 34 verses in this chapter. He is called the man of God at least 14 times. He's not even called a prophet except once. So what's the emphasis? Was he a prophet? He was a prophet, okay? But the emphasis is on this phrase, man of God. And in the majority of the cases, the word of the Lord is associated with the man of God. Now that is instructive, isn't it, brother? A man of God and the word of the Lord are tied together. He is a man of God. 
And of course, the last individual here is the prophet. Six times, let me count this again. Two, three, four, five. Six times he's called a prophet, but he's never called a man of God. So is he fulfilling an office? He is in the position of an office, but he's not called a man of God. Now here's what's significant about this man. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 11. We looked at this last week. This is a recording of the same incident when Jeroboam was setting up this similar religion, this idolatrous religion. In 2 Chronicles chapter 11, for the Levites left their pasture lands and their property and came to Judah and Jerusalem. Why? For Jeroboam and his sons had excluded them from serving as priests to the Lord. Jeroboam set up priests of his own for the high places, for the satyrs and the calves which he had made. Those from all the tribes of Israel who set their hearts on seeking the Lord God of Israel Follow these Levites to what city? Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. So folks, what happened when Jeroboam set up this like religion, which is unlike the true religion, but a like religion, is that the Levites, they left... Samaria. Did it cost them anything? They left their property. And they went back to where the Lord, where the revelation of God told them to worship. And many in those ten tribes, not enough to make a significant movement with Jeroboam, but many of those whose heart was set to seek the Lord, they did what? They followed the Levitical priesthood back to Judah. Now, why do I bring that up? Where's the old prophet? Well, The old prophet, we took the time to look in another chapter, says he was from Samaria. He's in Samaria. He did not what? He did not leave. Now, if we're giving him the benefit of the doubt, maybe he didn't leave because he was old. But the fact of the matter is, he should have what? 
he should have separated himself as a testimony to the true God-ordained religion that he gave to that nation. But he did not do it. He is there. I am sure that he is familiar with the things of the Bible. Why do I say that? Because when he spoke to the man of God, he said, an angel came to me and gave me the word of the Lord. That's Bible talk, is it not? But the Bible says he what? He lied. And I don't think that's the main warning of this chapter, but I do think it's a warning for us. Books and blogs and internet postings and articles and preaching and sermons and all kinds of stuff inundated out there. You know, over a hundred years ago, if you lived in a community and you were a Baptist, you probably attended the only Baptist church in that community, and that's where you attended from the time you were born till the time you what? The time you died. But now we can go where? We can go anywhere. And I think I think the riches and I do mean that. I think the riches of biblical commentary and preaching and all that, I, I, I give you know, my thumbs up on that. I have benefited. You have benefited. But I don't think that it's without warning. And if we're not careful, we can stop having biblical discernment. This prophet was an old prophet. So I'm assuming that in his younger days, he probably what? He might have served in the office of a prophet. And if I could just give myself a warning, and you can hear the warning and take the warning yourself. we need to stay true to the revelation of God as we get older. We can't bank on what has happened in the past. And we also can't assume that every person finishes well. It is important how we start. I mean, if you start running the Christian race and you're not regenerated, that's a big deal. But being regenerated and having a great start is a good thing. But finishing well is better. 
much better. I certainly don't want to be like this old prophet. Now, you may ask me, you say, well, is this old prophet, is he saved or not? Well, the the Old Testament doesn't always talk about that like we talk about it in the New Testament. We talk about people being justified. I don't know if this old prophet is going to be in glory or not. I'm just assuming he is, but he may not be. But in any case, here we have an old prophet familiar with the Mosaic commandments, familiar with the office of a prophet, using terminology, biblical terminology, and he leads a man of God astray. And he did it on what? He did it on purpose. So folks, that's that's a warning for us, is it not? There's never a place where you can get where you can where you should not be alert and watchful. That really is there really is no such place like that. And folks, we know that Peter thought he could get to a place where he didn't have to be alert and watchful and what happened. He fell, did he not? And thanks God for his grace. But so folks, let's take this morning and as we proceed through this chapter, I'm sure there's other warnings that will strengthen us and help us and give us insight in the days ahead. So let's go to prayer.